0: The other thing in Alaska is there's a lot of hatches on rivers. There's some rivers that have fantastic caddis hatches. There's other rivers that have green drakes and beautiful mayfly hatches. There's a little lime green stone on many rivers. And so I would say always take a dry fly box and some 4X tippet because I've been in some hatches with a seasoned veteran guide, a seasoned veteran angler. And we get there and there's literally heads coming up and sipping in mayflies and they look at me
1: that was brian o'keefe sharing a nice tip on how to catch grayling in alaska this is the wet fly swing fly fishing show welcome to the wet fly swing fly fishing show where you discover tips tricks and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today we'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing fly
0: tying and much more
1: How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Today's episode is sponsored by the Wet Fly Swing Member Society. The society provides exclusive discounts and access to innovative products and services from our member partner companies. Just head over to wetflyswing.com/slash-members to check out some of the companies who are on board. Plus, you can support the show at one convenient location. In today's episode, I talk with Brian O'Keefe, who has spent his life traveling the world and fly fishing. We talk about how Brian made his first trip to New Zealand when he was 19, back in 1973, and hasn't stopped traveling since. Brian shares some of his best photo tips, how he started Catch Magazine, and why his accountant doesn't really understand his actual job. Don't miss this as Brian shares some DIY tips for Alaska and how to mouse up rainbows. This episode is sponsored by Deli Fresh Design, an all American creator of fine, sustainable fly fishing gear. Stay tuned later in the show to hear how Ross does his part with DLD to reduce waste and impacts as he builds great equipment in a sustainable fashion. You can find fresh equipment designs on Instagram at Deli Fresh Design, and you can get 20% off your next order using the coupon code WFS20 at DeliFreshDesign.com. So, Without further ado, here's Brian O'Keefe. How's it going, Brian?
0: It's going great. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Um, You know, your name has been popping around there the way I've been doing these shows for quite a while now as I... I interview somebody and then you know some some more names come up and pop around and then somebody or somebody just tells me straight up you need to go interview that guy and actually uh river horse i think was the last person that that basically said you need to get brian on your show so um so we're here now and and i'm excited to to talk about some of the shows you ready to get started
0: yes absolutely
1: All right, so, um, yeah, I always start off a little bit on just the background. Before we get into all your background, I mean, you've, you know, I mean, there's a number of things we're going to go into today, including the photography and, you know, some of the other stuff you have going, the worldwide traveling. But maybe you can just start us off and talk about how you first got into fly fishing.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's, It's kind of a fun story, and I'm super lucky because my mother's father, my grandfather, Fred W. Johnson, was a dry fly purist in Missoula, Montana. So, you know, that's a pretty neat way to start being a kid. you got a granddad who fishes. (laughs) He also fishes a really traditional, more English style. He learned to fly fish in England. And so many of the streams over there, they don't allow wading. And you fish to rising fish only, and only upstream, and nothing subsurface. So (laughs) as a little kid, 8 to 12, I was sort of on this path of becoming a fly fisher through my grandfather's ideals, and so he was very strict on casting, on knots, on identifying bugs, and he was a little bit ahead of his time, but he had he had a master plan for my brother and I, and, and eventually we left his front yard in missoula for the big blackfoot river so
2: Hmm.
0: if you were writing a book you might call this a river runs through it,
1: exactly because there's so
0: many similarities and uh although my brother and i are still both alive okay uh,
1: right (laughs) so and hopefully you don't have too um, much of a a, an issue with alcoholism
0: (laughs) no 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 i don't hope not (laughs) um and so you know we just we just fished the blackfoot and learned a lot. We were kind of on a three-year program. The first year we were on the river, we never actually fished with flies. He had us do fly casting practice, but then when we went to the river, we actually had these big, long, well, they're just called cane poles with line on the end of them and to a hook, and we would catch live grasshoppers, and we would dab them around the pockets and places because his mission was to teach us where trout lived. And then about the third year, we put it all together and we could uh, actually, you know, walk up the river, cast into good spots. We didn't adhere to English style of just rising fish only. We fished everything. And back in the late sixties, you know, man, any river in Montana with a Joe's hopper or gray wolf, there was a lot of action. So, Hmm. you know, his plan worked. We were pretty, you know, savvy anglers as young people and uh, just never quit. And it's, been a lifelong passion and job and that's cool sort of everything rolled into one
1: that's cool so was your brother older or younger
0: yeah he's a year and a half older okay and uh still still loves to fish he's yep. sort of branched out into other fun things but uh sure. i i sort of carried the torch
2: yeah
1: that's that's a cool story yeah and, and i you said 1960 so montana just the first thing that comes to mind i recently interviewed joe brooks um the you know the uh, great nephew, I guess, of the the actual Joe Brooks, and he, he was a big guy. Yeah. Yeah. They called him Mister Montana. Do you remember anything about Joe Brooks back in the back in the day?
2: Oh, we of young, course. Then, yeah, you know, yeah. I,
0: yeah. But I read all his books, and he was a contributor to Outdoor Life magazine, and and I kind of grew up in with an appreciation for him because I saw some of my first photographs from Argentina and places like that a long, long time ago. And that probably planted a little seed and mm. became part of why I wanted to travel a lot. But on the other side, my grandfather hated him because <laughs> he promoted Montana. And he kind of you know, oh, coined yeah. the phrase blue ribbon trout stream. And <laughs> then all these rivers were in his articles and I read them all because I poured over that stuff. And it just bothered my granddad to no end, so I had this sort of a love hate relationship with Joe Brooks. But uh, yeah. I'm glad you you had a contact and were able to get some of the probably the neat family history that he had.
1: Yeah, yeah, we did that episode. It um, oh, I don't have it handy for me, but yeah, the interesting thing, you know, not to go too deep in Joe's life, but I mean, he was, you know, had a crazy life because he started out on uh, kind of, you know, very well to do. But then, through his life, midway he found himself living homeless on the streets, and uh, wow. it was amazing. You know, for five years he disappeared and was pretty much just a homeless, you know, transient. And then uh, out of wow. nowhere, out I didn't of, know that. Yeah, and out of nowhere he gets sober, and uh, for the rest of his life, life he dedicates it to teaching people about fly fishing. Oh,
0: that's very interesting.
1: Yeah, so that's the that's the story and that's the documentary that we chatted about on on that episode. But, um, but yeah, I mean, for your story here, so I, I did want to ask you about where the bug came from. So, you know, it sounds like, you know, guys like Joe Brooks, is there any other thing you can attribute? Because you've traveled pretty much all over the world, right, fly fishing?
0: Yeah, I got an early start. You know, I'm 64, and when I was right out of high school – Well, I had a plan to graduate from high school a semester early and then I moved during my senior year and my new school district in Portland, Oregon would not allow me to graduate early. They said I had to stay for the whole year even though in that school district I had enough credits to graduate after my junior year. So I I worked and I saved money and my plan was to go to New Zealand for three months. During that, you know, semester I was gonna be gone and go to Oregon State and start a fish and wildlife program. Well, I stayed the whole year, but I still had my ticket and my money saved, so I I headed off to New Zealand in 1973. And that's, that's basically a long time ago. What year were you born in?
1: 75.
0: Well, you see? Yep. That seems like a long time ago then. So. <laughs> But I, to put it in perspective and going back to my grandfather a little bit, my grandfather and grandmother went to fly fish in New Zealand, dedicated fly fishing trip, in 1951. Wow. And, and now,
2: huh.
0: I, I even wonder, how did they get there? My friends didn't even know where New Zealand was when I left in 1973. It's almost a, it's a new country from, in yeah. geologic time, but it's still, I mean, did they take? Boats? I yeah. mean, I don't even know. You know, I'm sure they probably flew most of the way. But So here is some perspective on, you know, who is a trout bum and who's exploring and who's... No, it's all been done. Yeah. Even, you know, New Zealand, 1951 had to be kind of a pioneering deal because when I went in 73, I basically backpacked from the north of the North Island all the way to the south of the South Island and zigzagged back and forth from river to river. And in that whole fishing season, of every day, I only ran into anglers in one place. And that was the famous Lake Tapo. Huh. And there's always going to be anglers there. It's rich in history and tradition. But once I got off into the valleys and the mountains and just backpacked, lived off the land and, and fished, I never saw another angler in New Zealand in the entire fishing season. So, hmm. well, those days are long gone.
2: Yeah, but what
0: a great experience it was to just be freewheeling, nineteen years old, and a Fenwick fiberglass rod, <laughs> a fluger medalist reel, Scientific Angler ivory floating mm-hmm. line, and miscellaneous flies. And it doesn't matter really the flies. In fact, I had to tie some. I was running low, so I just found chicken feathers, at people's farms, and made my own funky little flies. <laughs> <laughs> but You know, that was just a great way to get immersed into this world-class fishing scene, although I had great fishing in Montana and Washington, Oregon, British Columbia by the time I was 19. And so, well, my three months went too fast, and then I extended my visa to six months, and then that came and gone. But I was way in the south of the South Island, middle of nowhere, and, um, well, actually they take immigration very seriously in New Zealand and I uh, was caught. And the next day the police put me on a plane to Melbourne, Australia, which well, I guess I was kind of done and ready to go anyway. But long story short, I went across Australia to the outback worked and then worked my way up through Indonesia and Southeast Asia. And I got a job teaching skiing in Kashmir, India, in the Himalayas. They have a little ski resort up there with, chair lifts and stuff so i was basically their first ski instructor and my job was to teach these world-class climbing guides how to ski so they could become the ski school in the next year and eventually okay the seasons roll and i come home and it's summer and i lucked into a job in alaska and i went up there and eventually made my way to oregon state and central oregon college and and then you know on sort of back to reality. And, and from there, you know, I was just a total goner for fishing. I experienced some wonderful stuff. I, I, it was just starting the process of where to go next and how can I keep doing this? Mm. And do I have to get a real job? And (laughs) so, uh, you know how things, one thing leads to another. So I, you know, I had a part-time job in a sporting goods store running the fly department and that turned into some guiding. And then that turned into, Going to the lodges in Alaska and meeting great people and meeting one person who that was Dennis Black. He he started Umqua Feather Merchants, which is mm-hmm. just Umqua now. Mm-hmm. And I started a you know a rep job with him, and that turned into twenty some years. And so I I believe in luck and meeting the right people and being in the right place at the right time and being able to take advantages of opportunities that come your way. And I. I didn't do anything that's that outrageous that anybody else couldn't have done, but I was just in a position to be sort of mobile and, um, you know, go with the flow. And Hmm. I was single most of my life. So I had the ability to travel and pick up and go. And, um, there's only a few things I would change. Otherwise I've been a lucky guy. and A lot of neat things came my way and, and I wouldn't, uh, (laughs) yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I I'm just sort of glad I didn't go straight to college and get a job and go into a cubicle or something like that. I'm glad I sort of was a bit of a bum. That's and, right. Uh, That's right. Was got, that in your got the travel bug?
1: Was that in your 20s when you first hit that in 19? Uh, or that first trip? How old were you? I
0: was 19 in 1973. Yeah, 19. Think.
1: Yeah, so you're so you're right on the. Uh, the The word of advice I can't remember who who mentioned this recently, but you know I wish I would have heard, had this word of advice. But it was you know your twenties are basically given to you, you know, so take advantage. Of, yeah, you know, so you and yeah, actually you know been, now that I think about it, that way that way. might have been you that might have been you on another podcast I heard that that said that advice. But uh, uh, so so basically you uh, so did you you never got a real job then right? You you pretty much have always been. Doing, uh, I mean, it sounds like you've you've managed to be in. I mean, from starting in skiing, but really the fly fishing industry—that's been what you've been doing all this time.
0: Yeah, and you know, the fly fishing—it's kind of an industry. I'm not sure I'm I'm totally sold that it is, but it's yeah. definitely a, you know, it's a group of businesses. And you know, when I had my rep job, I I started out. Uh, I had Orvis in the Northwest and Alaska, Umqua, and eventually worked for Sims, Patagonia, Scott Rod, Scientific Anglers—just some great companies, fantastic people. And when I started, you needed a rather large territory because there weren't as many fly shops, and it's almost reverted back to that now. But um, so I had parts of Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, and, and Alaska. So gigantic territory, but can you imagine the great fishing opportunities? Okay. So you've got a, you, I had sort of a winter car, like a Subaru four-wheel drive, and then I had a van, like more like a rep van with all my samples, so I would just be on the road almost constantly, huh. and, you know, in the Rockies, you can't do much in the morning because they have guide trips going out, so you fish in the morning. Then you can see the owners or managers during the day, middle part of the day, and then their guide trips come back about four, so you're back out on the water and it was just great. I could fish almost every day, Wow! get my job done. And the cool thing was there was no internet and there was no cell phones and there was no email. So everybody had, everybody that was a sales rep had a little, you know, cassette phone recorder, phone machine at their house. And it basically said the same thing. You know, hi, I'm Brian O'Keefe. I'm on the road. Please leave a message of the beep well to me being on the road meant idaho alaska or belize the bahamas or christmas island you know i mean my sales manager didn't know really where i was <laughs> they didn't have you know your your constant technology now of text and right. email
1: and, and so you could just disappear you, know, I from, you could disappear for 2 weeks oh, and nobody, nobody even know
0: yeah, in fact, my best month I ever had as a commission sales rep, I was out of the country three weeks, so <laughs> I, wow. I, I kind of worked the system.
1: It sounds like you but, had, you know, you get, it, it, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a pretty. Um, I mean, if you can make it work, it sounds like a pretty amazing life. That you know that that what you just talked about there is that something. I mean, are people still? Is that still the the life for for the reps?
0: Well, it's changed just a lot, be, mainly because of technology and you know, there's been some highs and lows. In the 90s, it was really a great job. It it paid really well. There's new shops opening up, some great people getting in the sport. Um, It was a real boom in that a lot of people were picking up fly rods for the first time and and becoming kind of weekend warriors, but some of those graduated into, you know, lifestyle and, and lifetime anglers. But, you know, we were so busy and there's a lot of sales meetings, and there were sports shows and trade shows. So it's, it's a real job. And you don't work for Sims or Patagonia or Scientific Anglers, which was at the time owned by 3M, and just be a total fish bum. You really had to get the job done. I and mean, people were looking at your numbers just like they do every day in every job today. But if you could get those numbers and be just a little elusive and sneaky, it was one of the best lifestyle Uh, jobs where you could make good money and have a lot of fun. And I think today there's still some of that, except you're just a little bit more, you know, tied to technology. So everybody knows where you are and it's a little hard to sneak away, but you know, who's to say that fishing with a fly shop owner isn't work, you know, of course it is. You're going to be trying rods, reels, lines, and flies. So, you know, there's a way to keep it fun. I mean, you would expect a golf pro to golf. You'd expect a ski instructor to ski. So yeah. there's no reason why people in the fishing business shouldn't fish. Yep. I just had that conversation with my tax person. He did not get it. But <laughs> um, so, but anyway, yeah, it's like any other outdoor sport. You've nice. got to do it. And you got to stay relevant.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, let's, uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll circle back around to, to some of this. I wanted to well, there's a few things I want to get into. I want to talk a little about, you know, the photography stuff you've done, which is pretty, you know, pretty amazing. And then, you know, we got a little bit on Catch Magazine for sure I want to touch on. But I want to jump into Alaska because, you know, it sounds like you've done quite a few trips out there. And I, and I read an article or something out there where you, you wrote something about, you know, the, the – kind of different ways to do Alaska. One of them was a DIY sort of thing. And, and we're kind of in a season right now where we're doing, it's basically, I'm calling it kind of a destination DIY season. So if, could you speak to maybe uh, an Alaska trip and maybe help somebody who maybe hasn't ever been up there and wants to maybe do a DIY type of trip or just speak to that a little bit?
0: Oh yeah, sure. Um, There's so many opportunities in Alaska because it's several different states rolled into one. You've got the southeast section of Juneau and all down there, and that's kind of tough to do on your own because it's surrounded by water and there's no roads and you need a boat or a float plane. But then as you move up, you know, to the, uh, you know, like Anchorage, Kenai, some of those areas are very accessible with rental cars. And I did a lot of that as a rep. I'd get a rental car that I could sleep in. And I'd work and fish my way from Fairbanks down to Denali, down to Wasilla, down to Anchorage and out to the Kenai Peninsula to Seward and Homer. So I had just fantastic fun fishing just on the road with a rental car. And you can do that pretty cheap. Hmm. And then there's the bigger trips, the float trips, um, uh, particularly in the Bristol Bay area or a little north. And there's a lot of different rivers there. And to sort of address that, because that's the, the sort of the ultimate trip, um, a few things. One, it's probably best to go to Alaska once and, you know, if it's possible, hire a guide or do a, a set program just to be familiar with bears, mm-hmm. to be familiar with the weather, fishing techniques and things like that. Now, a person can, who has basically good outdoor skills and has camped in, you know, big winds or rain. And and if you feel fairly confident that you can hold your own in bear country, then a person could go and organize a, uh, say a week long float trip without going to Alaska, but just maybe just back up. Let's just say it's better to have some Alaska experience than not. But, uh, so the basics are, You know, there's quite a few rivers that have lodges and guides. There's some rivers that don't. And so a person might as well get the most complete Alaska experience you can and try to find rivers that aren't guided and or have a lot of float planes on them or lodges on them with lots of jet boats. So that just takes some research Everything's basically online. Yeah. Um you can go river by river and what was and one. Find of your, out.
1: What was one of your favorite if you think of uh, maybe a species? Did you have a, a certain species you really love to go for up there?
0: Yeah, actually uh I'm glad you asked that. Um my favorite type of trip was leaving early in the season, meaning June. And actually between my friends and my brother and I, when we plan these trips, we would sometimes be the very first raft down a river. So the charter company that you connect with, it has a, a De Havilland beaver or an otter or a goose that takes rafts and anglers and drops you off. You know, usually you, they also provide the raft and oars and definitely get oars, not paddles, <laughs> um, a cooking equipment, everything except sleeping, bag, tent and tackle. So, once that's all arranged, you get dropped off. Well, they'll say, well, yeah, you should do okay. You know, we haven't dropped anyone off yet this year and that would always make us smile. Cause <laughs> I, this is great. You know, and we'd always throw in a, uh, what's called a bow saw. And it, of course the blades protected and all that, but there's trees that sometimes fall across rivers and you'd have to see them and then go cut them out of the way because the first raft down is going to be the one no, that no. has to do all that work. But you get first crack at, all the fish. So the reason we like going early was that the rivers hadn't been fished very much and they don't get fished a a lot anyway. But normally in the headwaters where you're dropped off, it, it can be kind of slow. It's super cold and there's not a lot of insect life. But as you work your way down and rivers pick up some of the tundra tributaries that are a little warmer, you start getting into bug life. You start hitting char and grayling. And then maybe on day two or two and a half, you hit the rainbows. And we just love to mouse fish Mm -hmm. for rainbows. But, of course, the little baby sockeye, chum, chinook, silver salmon are migrating too. And they're about an inch and a quarter. Each species looks identical. So if you've got a nice little fry pattern that looks like a baby sockeye especially, (laughs) and you swing that through these riffles and runs, there's just these big attacks from rainbows and char everything basically is feeding on these fry. That's about the only game in town. So it's a real important food source for the fish. And consequently, as an angler, you're going to try to match that. And it's a fun technique because you're a tight line swing like steelhead, and you have big hits and then immediate jumps. Hmm. And so that either the mousing or the fry pattern fishing was super fun. And then about day five, you start floating over your first king salmon. And they're fresh, they're bright. Oh pretty bright. You know, sometimes they turn a little pink sure. or rose colored, but they're they're fresh, they're hot. And so you've got your nine or ten weight that's been sitting in the raft for a few days and you've been catching rainbows or even pulling off into some sloughs and fishing for pike. And then you hit the kings and now you've got a kind of a king rainbow combination for the left the rest of the float. And you combine that with the light being out all day and almost all night. It really never gets too dark that's in right. June. So some of the evening fishing and after dinner fishing is fantastic. And so there's the, the great fishing. Then there's this long day and then the camping, camp cooking, which is always a blast. You know, I think I enjoy some of that just camp stuff as much as anything else. And you get, your buddies are all having fun. And you just roll that all together. Would you do like a, a yeah, week at you a time? Know, five, five to seven days. Some rivers are, as much as a hundred miles. So, you know, that takes a whole week and even maybe eight days, but, um, and where you guys just... now with GPS? Oh yeah. Oh, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, were you guys just out there, uh, grab a Chinook and grab a filet and had fresh fi- uh, fish all the time? Is that how you worked it?
0: Yeah. You, you, d- you definitely have to like fish because there's a weight restriction on, on your flight in and out, but, you know, so you provide your own food and you take, you know, your, your best bang for the buck, which would be frozen chicken breast, maybe some steaks, a lot of pastas that, that's light that can then become more of a meal and, you know, pancake batter and that sort of thing. But you you have a weight restriction, so you got to put in your 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 beverages, whatever people might prefer, whether it's just pop or beer or bourbon or tequila. Mm. And, um, you know, that all adds up. So you have to sacrifice a few pounds here and there. And you, you don't have the luxury of taking ice either. So while well, the rivers are cold, you have a mesh bag for your beverages. And and so eating fish was really part of the menu uh, at least every day and sometimes two meals a day. So you have scrambled eggs with salmon and you can make kind of a salmon sandwich. And then at dinner, you can have grilled or cooked in foil or any kind of combination that we figured on a week long float trip that you basically had salmon in every form, except a salmon margarita. And, <laughs> and you just, you know, yeah, you might get a little tired of it after a while. Salmon is a strong flavor that yeah. that, that can kind of overwhelm, but it's healthy and yeah. it's there. And the key was not to catch some big 22 pound King salmon. It was to catch a four to six pound Chinook Jack. So immature male salmon and to a degree, it's still debated whether they affect the spawning or not. They're mostly immature and they just go up there, but they die like yeah. salmon do. And so they were sort of our prize catch. If a person could catch a four to six pound Chrome bright Jack King, they didn't have to do dishes <laughs> because they provided the meal. And so, so it became, um, uh, you know, kind of involved to a degree because huh you're loving catching the bigger fish, but in reality you're like hoping for a really small one too, because that's just perfect. You eat it all. Yeah. There's no waste. Bones and guts are in the river. Bears and seagulls and eagles eat all that. And then, you know, it's just a, uh, yeah. Part of the whole thing is camp cooking and yeah. catching the right fish. And
1: how, how, really many, fun. how many trips do you think you've made up to Alaska?
0: You know, I was asked that a little while ago, and I I don't know, but I'm sure I've made over fifty.
1: Oh no, kidding! Yeah, that's that's a, that's yeah. amazing. That's cool. Yeah. So you've been up all around. I mean, without like giving away any secrets or anything, is there a kind of a spot that everybody knows about that you know where, where you might be able to do this sort of sort of a trip that you're talking about? I mean, I know there's tons of places, right? Depending, you mentioned some of them, the Kenai Peninsula, but but as far as Getting a float plane, maybe doing it yourself, is that still a pretty easy thing just to do? Call up somebody and say, you know, I want to go into Kodiak or something like that? Or what would you recommend there?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can do it from Kodiak all through the Alaska Peninsula, Bristol Bay, and farther north. Every little town that's, you know, like there's King Salmon, Macnick, Dillingham, those towns, all of them have... They all have it you know, they serve everything served by plane. So several people really depend upon a certain amount of people to uh, contact them via usually, you know, their website. And, um, yeah, they're in the business to get a few anglers out yeah. to these rivers. And there's other options too. There's parts of, uh, Alaska, like in the wood tick chick where there's fantastic canoeing from a lake to river, lake to river system. Oh, cool. And, um, uh, there's other places that are drop-off and set up a big camp. I've done that on the Nushagak where you're dropped off and you put up a few tents and you're, you're say, just above tidewater so that each high tide brings in the fresh kings and you just wade out in front of camp, hmm. swing, and maybe only fish two or 300 yards the whole time you're there, but each tide brings in new fish. So they're coming to you, which is kind of a neat deal. And um, I've also done some charters. In southeast Alaska, and uh, again, people have websites. They're not hard to find. And I I did two different kinds of – well, actually, three different kinds of trips down their way. I really wanted to find and catch feeding kings in the salt. So prime of their life, chrome silver, feeding on herring and candlefish. And that was accomplished. It was hard. You don't catch a lot, but, you know, it's really, really fun when you do. And you're in some of the most beautiful scenery in the world. And then the other one was to do silvers in the fall in the salt or the lower hundred feet of some rivers. I mean, right in tidewater, right. and that's that can be literally almost all day action. When it, when it's a good silver run, they're easy to catch. And they're they're really feisty, and, um, and the last trip, which I did maybe three three times, was finding a charter that would go river to river with a couple zodiacs or a little jet boat and target steelhead in the spring. And that's pretty uncommon fishing, which is sort of strange because there's over a thousand steelhead rivers in Alaska, but I challenge my friends to name two or three, (laughs) you know, so it's just odd that they're inaccessible. Um, Sometimes you can't fly into them. You only have to can use a boat, but at times those places are so rough. There's so much tide and, and, and they're dangerous, you know, so we, chartered um, those King uh, king crab boats that that were sort of decommissioned Alaska bought out a certain amount of license holders so the owners still had their boat but they couldn't commercial king crab fish anymore because they were bought out well they're the best skippers in the world they have seaworthy boats and they're up for anything so we would take those kind of deadly of catch guys and <laughs> put four or five friends on a boat with some Zodiacs or kayaks and off we'd go and just go river to river and hike up. And at times it was unbelievably great steelheading. Other times, no, you struck out because some of these rivers are very short. They may only get 300 fish a year. And, you know, you might want to, you know, don't want to be like a fish hog, but catching a couple is okay. Other rivers were bigger, big systems with tributaries and they had you know, thousands of fish per year that would run up. So those were just great trips. The only thing is those bears have never seen people and you are a food item to them or a serious competitor. So they don't just kind of give you a stink eye and, and you walk around them. You see a bear in that country, you really got to be on your toes and have a plan B for mm-hmm. which way to go and what to do. Cause, um, just a lot different than the, popular rivers around Katmai in that area. All
1: right. Did you ever have any, any close encounters that that were your kind of thought you might, might uh, (laughs) not make it?
0: Yeah, I did. I, um, as a guide up there, you know, you dealt with bears almost every day and, you know, you sort of develop this almost sort of bulletproof attitude because they mostly run away or they stand their ground and you can go around them and they don't follow you or do anything weird. Now that's, 90-something percent of the time. But the other percent is the bluff charges or ones that come out of nowhere or, you know, south cubs and things like that. So it can get a little hairy. The worst experience I ever had was on my first day as a guide in Alaska. So I was hired, and i get up there. It was on the Copper River, and... That's not the famous Copper River for Copper River right. King Salmon. It was the Copper River that's fly fishing only that goes into Lake Iliamna. Mm. And so my first, after we got settled in, there's just two guides. We we're just a small little camp. And we were going to be flown around to several of the rivers that we would guide so we could learn the places where the planes come in, when to be there, just logistics. But we would want to take a few casts in each spot just to kind of get the feel of the waters. And that would be like Telerik Creek, Gibraltar, Dream Creek, um those rivers around Iliamna. So we flew into this one lake, and we went up this stream, and I was by myself. And I just wanted to go look it over, and I walked up onto a sleeping bear. Oh. Literally three feet away. Two more steps, I would have kicked it. Jeez. And I went, oh God, you know, and it sensed me, heard me turns around, jumps up on its hind legs, it's taller than me, mm. snarling and spitting with these giant claws out in front, and I'm four feet away. Wow. And I'm just saying, this is it, this is it, it's all over. And I just started to say, you know, the usual, don't make eye contact, talk softly, and just slink away. And I did that, I just, hey, bear, hey, bear. And I took steps back real slow, I walked out backwards, sort of into the creek a little bit, and. And the oh. bear was still snarling and spitting and then it dropped down to all fours and turned around and ran off. And hmm. so basically I, I scared it and probably as a wild animal. It's thinking, you know, it it's a, there's predator prey relationships in all situations. So it thought right. maybe a bigger bear just stumbled onto it. So it was kind of freaked out. I was pretty freaked <laughs> out and I thought, you know, wow. I don't know about this Alaska guiding. This is pretty <laughs> hairy stuff. So, yeah. but, uh,
2: yeah, that was probably
0: my closest yeah. encounter, although I had been followed by bears where I couldn't lose them. They just tracked me oh, um, wow. crossing Did, rivers. Would you, you ever carry a,
1: carry a shotgun or any, any sort of stuff like that?
0: Yeah, when it was legal on some uh, some rivers because a lot of my fishing was in the Katmai National Park. You can't take a weapon and or other places, but several spots uh, the jet boats had a baseball bat and a shot-off shotgun, but fortunately I don't know anyone who's really ever had to use it to save a life or something like that. Occasionally you might fire around as a noise deterrent because you're filleting silvers on the beach and you're waiting for the plane and the bears decide that those fish are a lot easier to catch than the ones in the river. So you're just making noise and and, uh, biding some time. But fortunately um, as much as I like I mean, I love pheasant hunting and deer and elk hunting and all that, but I don't want to shoot a bear legal or in an emergency situation either. So I'm glad that never happened. I think bears are really cool and uh, that's just part of the Alaska experience.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah. It makes you feel better more than anything having the shotgun. Yeah. Just like it's something just in case something crazy happens. That's about it. But uh, yeah. So, okay. It's a we'll good get,
0: sleeping pill, too.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, there's a bunch of stuff we could uh, go on here on the last, and, and maybe we'll swing back around here. But I did want to touch um, base a little bit on Catch Magazine because I think that's, you know, one of your projects that seems like it's really blown up pretty, pretty big. I guess part of the whole Instagram and everything that's been going on. But can you talk a little bit about Catch Magazine? Maybe describe it to somebody who's never kind of heard about it or read anything about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking because uh, I'm very, really proud of it. And and I was the co-owner with Todd Moen. And and so a few years ago I gave Todd the whole thing. I wanted to help him and promote him, be his biggest cheerleader, but I just wanted to move on and do something different. And so I'm still, uh, still talk with Todd constantly. He's in Australia right now filming a video. And uh, so Catch Magazine came about because... I was phasing out of my rep job. It was in that two thousand, 2007, two thousand eight downturn in the economy, and my business was just sort of um, I was just sort of phasing down and he had been a cameraman on like an eSPN type outdoor show fishing show, and had rem- just endured a-
1: Do you re- remember which one that was?
0: No, I don't actually, because I've to, never been much of a TV guy. I'll,
1: I'll look up. um, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll I'll talk to. I'll. I'll try to find out that I like to, and some of the other stuff we'll talk about. I'll have links to all this in the show notes as well. So if I can find it.
0: Yeah, and also you know if, if other people recommended people to interview, I'd say yeah, get a hold of Todd. He's just a great guy and, and yeah, lots definitely. of interesting, you know, insight onto some of the behind the scenes part of, of fly fishing media. So. Anyhow, he was uh, he was in a plane wreck in the Bahamas with the camera crew, and nobody got hurt real bad, but he just said, you know, he's getting married, wants to have kids, and he, he thinks he's going to have to find a different job that he's not going all over the world all the time. So at the same time, he was sort of interested in starting something, and I was looking at something new, and he was living in Bend, Oregon at the time, so that was just sort of a cool coincidence, and we would meet in uh, coffee shops and poach their Wi-Fi or we'd meet in one of the 20 brew pubs in Bend and poach their Wi-Fi. And we've kicked around lots of different of ideas because he brings a great skill set of computer, internet, and video. My skill set was, well, being a fishing bum and, (laughs) you know, photography and a few other things. So we just thought, gosh, we got something that's kind of cool here. We're both you know, in a neat position in a way to start something from scratch. And we, we, we did a few prototype projects, but again, we were in that downturn in the economy when really people were hurting and people were losing their homes and businesses were failing. Fly shops were dropping like flies. So we had the added challenge that man, finding sponsors, finding advertisers, whatever we did, we, we found a lot of resistance just because of the economy. So, We just decided to let's just do what we do best. Todd, one of the best video guys in the world. I hold my own with photography. Let's just develop something that people will enjoy and we will enjoy also. And and we kind of came up with Catch Magazine, which was, if there was like a one word or a one line description, it was the, it was kind of a coffee table book on fly fishing it made into magazine format. So it was the sort of a celebration of fly fishing art, uh, video film photography. And so we didn't have articles on, you know, how to wade or read the water, how to tie flies, how to cast. It was strictly art and entertainment. Mm -hmm. So it was photo essays from all over the world. Some of the best photographers in the world, great contributors and essays could include, destinations, which is probably the most common is just really cool places, people's experiences. But it could also be a particular insect like a brown drake or a damselfly because you could do fantastic photo work with any kind of insect or hatch or hatch experience. Um, We had some essays on people. We had essays on guides in general. We had just essays on everything. So, and it came out every other month and it was free And our popularity just skyrocketed. It was in 158 countries, and we had 100,000, 200,000 readers and subscribers. We had decent advertising, but it still was a difficult sell. It was a little ahead of its time. uh, So was this before? That's crazy. It's 10 years old.
1: Yeah, was this before or right when the Drake and the Fly Fish Journal were getting going?
0: Um. Yeah, you know, I don't exactly remember. Yeah. Uh, so there busy. was only one other. Yeah. Fly fishing online fly fishing publication now, dozens have come and gone. A lot of them do one issue and they go, "Wow, this is a lot of work <laughs> and there's not a lot of money in it." And I'm not fishing, so three strikes. And but you know, Todd and I were were living at that, and as it got going, we were, we both moved to Sisters, Oregon, just outside of Bend, and it's one of the most livable places in the world. And oh, we're just having a blast and, and Todd's a great worker. I, I know many times I would email him at 10 PM with a question and boom, he'd get right back <laughs> to me cause he's still working and that's good and bad in that yeah. you know, we loved our job. People love the product. You know, there's half a dozen photo essays and one of his signature Todd Moan videos, which are fantastic. You know, many of his videos have over 2 million views, oh, which, yeah. But in fly fishing is just unheard of. Yeah. I mean, I think a successful fly fishing video, people use a benchmark of around thirty thousand is is good because that's about the size of some fly fishing magazines was thirty to forty thousand subscribers. So if you got that in video, you're kind of holding yeah. your own. But two million videos on several, or two million views on several of his videos is just like landmark accomplishment. It's just fantastic. So and and it's so funny. Because some of those videos we made for about $75 or $150 okay. is a, a tank or two of gas, some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and, and then cool. just go out and make it happen. You know, we yeah. didn't have a lot of, you know, Todd's a one-man band, camera, sound, editing, music, everything. Yeah. What so, do you think
1: was the the secret to his um, the, the videos? Because, I mean, I, I've seen some of them, and I'll put some some of those in the show notes as well, but... I mean, they are, what makes them so special? What would you tell, what'd you say?
0: Well, you know, our our original theory on all that was to not really teach or preach too much, but just to show fly fishing is a beautiful sport. And I think Todd was also a little ahead of his time in, in say the keep them wet movement. You know, we always had fish in the water. We didn't do any big grip and grins and stuff. There was a lot of respect to the sport and respect to the fish. And we highlighted the beauty and the challenges of the sport, but not to see me, you know, not so much the Instagram, Insta famous stuff. It was really about uh, an experience. We had a short little simple storyline and we kept it. You know, even though we went to some pretty cool places, we hardly ever used like a big fancy boat, you know, like in-boat fishing. Because in-boat fishing shows are generally just sort of bad. You know, they're just kind of boring. And What can you do in a boat? So we're always walking or using a bike or using a little Honda Trail 90 or some funky, (laughs) you know, kind of raft or kayak. And and, and I think people just are related to that, that it wasn't, you know, a $200,000 jet boat.
1: This episode is sponsored by Deli Fresh Design, a company that makes sustainable fly fishing gear in the heart of Denver, Colorado. Deli Fresh blends old waders and recycled sailcloth with Cordura canvas to make rugged, river-tested gear such as wallets, sling packs, and my favorite, beer koozies. I had a great chat with Ross at Deli Fresh as I was blown away by his dedication to fly fishing and conservation. Here's a short clip of how Ross reduces waste with his personal actions and as a responsible company. But as a company, I'm trying to reduce my impact uh, by riding a bike or taking uh, the bus or shared uh, shared cars, stuff like that on, uh, for commuting. And then, you know, yeah, when I go fishing, I'll get in a car, but I, I try to go with other people. And, and so I think there's things that as consumers that we can do on a daily basis. My own mentality of doing those things on a daily basis, like driving or, or riding a bike, uh, and then trying to see what uh, what materials I can use that reduce waste or what I'm trying to do as a person and as a company. Pretty good stuff, right? Let's support a great company doing business the right way. All of DFD's gear will help you spend more time casting and less time juggling your stuff. To see these great products, go follow them on Instagram where you can see their latest designs. Head over to delifreshdesign.com and use the coupon code WFS20, to get 20% off your next order. That's Deli Fresh Design and the coupon code WFS20. I mean, when you were doing the videos, were you guys there working together on these things and taking photos at the same time and kind of, you know, was it kind of an equal thing, or, or were you off kind of doing, you know, most of the photos on your own?
0: Yeah, the uh, when Todd and I w- did videos, and then I've been in maybe... 10 of his videos in in 10 years I, I don't want to be in more than one a year and i just don't i just have a thing about kind of overexposure of in any sport or business or activity it, there's room for everybody and i don't want to pig it i don't want to be able to think that i'm some uh, guy that just has to get his pictures taken right. all the time the rock star. and so <laughs> yeah so but you know i'm we're partners and we bring in other people we might have to pay or we have to at least cover more costs and that sort of thing. So we kept it cheap, we kept it really fun and light and we were nimble and fast. We got good at doing stuff. We weren't a big crew. You know, we could jump around log jams and get the drone up, down and and do a lot. All through that I would try to take some of my own photos too, just because we're in great spots and really neat stuff. But when you're doing a video you do have to kinda stay focused on continuity and mm. the, the, the storyline, that sort of thing. So it's not yep. too easy to get a lot of photography done, but uh, we managed to get a little bit of a balance in there. And And I think the best part is we, we did a lot of work together, a lot of long nights and we, well, of course, like any sort of little business, you know, we have got financial issues and needs. And mm-hmm. the, I think the best thing that came about 10 years later is Todd and I are still just great friends and, you know, I love his family and, I just love the quality of the work he does. He's really ethical and, uh, just, just a pleasure to, to do that stuff with. And, and I just wish him the best of luck and success going down the road. Cause catch magazine still holds its own. It's a $12 subscription now for six issues. Mm-hmm. But when you get a Todd known original film and then some of the best photography around the world rolled into one at. Yeah. So what would that be? Two bucks an issue. Yep. um, pretty reasonable it's pretty good deal yeah Yeah. catchmagazine it's catchmagazine.net some people go to dot com catchmagazine.net oh yeah Yeah. i think
1: i think i just typed it in and uh oh yeah i guess i yeah well if you just type in catch magazine it'll go to the dot net for sure
0: yeah yeah yeah, right
2: yeah yep okay
0: yeah so that was a great project and i still enjoy being uh involved as a contributor and helper and cheerleader and uh i just hope it just rolls and rolls. It's a good product.
1: So, so now that I mean, so I was kind of looking back at what we talked about. You know, we had nineteen seventy three, uh, New Zealand, two thousand seven. You, you know, the the crash of the market and your rep job ends, and now Catch Magazine. You're kind of out of that. I mean, what what's what's your plan here for the rest of the you know <laughs> the rest of your you know your time here? You got you got a lot of time left. Are you still sticking? No, it? yeah,
0: you're so kind. <laughs> yeah, in other words. I might have a couple good years left in me. Yeah. So, um, well, right now I work with a really cool company. It's called 11 Experience. And I work with 11 Angling. So 11 Experience is based in Crested Butte, Colorado. And it's a company that owns quite a few lodges, fishing lodges. Some of them double as heli ski lodges and snowcat skiing. So two of my favorite things, you know, skiing and fishing. So we have a fishing group. And um, we staff, manage, and guide in some of the coolest places. Uh, Deplar Farm Lodge is considered possibly the nicest fishing lodge in the world. That's in Iceland. Mm. And right now, in fact, I got a text from a guy that's over there, and he did the helicopter skiing for half the day. Then he threw on a wetsuit, and he surfed in the afternoon. And he's going to try to do that. Skiing in the morning, surfing, and then fishing for sea run browns in the evening, and do all three in one day, which would be really cool. So that's right. Anyhow, what would
1: you call that? So Is there we've a name got these... for that when you do all three.
0: Not yet, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's a type of grand slam for sure. Yeah. And uh, so then there's other ski lodges in Europe, but then there's a really beautiful lodge in Patagonia in Chile with helicopter fishing down there. Plus jet boats and rafts and drift boats, and really fantastic fishing, so a mothership in the Bahama, mothership in Florida and Louisiana, mm-hmm. and a fantastic lodge in Colorado mm-hmm. and it's growing, and so there's probably you know probably two hundred plus employees in the company wow, and it's called Eleven Experience, which you could ask yourself or your listeners like how many of you you've heard of eleven experience and a lot of people say, "Well, I haven't yet. What's up?" I mean, it's just been kind of under the radar. It's a building and growing company of real, real avid, active, and super intelligent people running this company to make a, a real dynamic kind of approach to fishing and skiing. Um, you can be laid back and you can just, you know, fish here and fish there, but they really want people to get after it with the best equipment and, and awesome guides and fish the right time of year and right tides. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's just a little bit different than say, maybe your average fishing lodge that has sort of a set program. And I've been to a lot and I love them all to tell you the truth. There's very few bad ones, but I kind of like this approach of maybe a little bit more younger approach of being very physical, very active using um, all the resources possible. And so, so that's my gig. That's cool. I, I sort of well, what is do your, a little bit of everything for them.
1: Oh, you do? So your role is you kind of do whatever they need you, you can you can do?
0: Yeah, and, you know, since they're uh, almost sort of a moving target, they're growing and they're just trying to get their brand out, I'm I'm supporting that by working with, well, people that book trips. That would be the Fly Shop in Reading, Yellow Dog, Flywater Travel, Frontier. So I'm a conduit to those guys giving them information, opportunities to fish our locations. Um, We designed a booth, a 10-foot fly fishing show trade show booth this year, went to all the fly fishing shows, and we'll go to the IFTD dealer show in Denver in October. So getting the name out, um, let people know who we are, what we do. Mm -hmm. So I'll work also with magazine editors, videographers, photographers, so we can get publicity. And I work with the angling public and people that like to go to Chile and Iceland and Colorado and, and other places that we're exploring. So, I mean, who doesn't want to do a mothership trip in the Bahamas and oh, Andros yeah. Island? I mean, there's a,
2: yep.
0: I mean, these are really cool places and they're well thought out, well managed. And, um, hmm. yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it, because it's that type of a trip, uh, you know, there's limited amount of people that can go. They're not, they're not super expensive, but they're not cheap either. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's challenging in a very competitive market of lodges and outfitters to, you know, keep people coming and make them happy. And there's a lot of competition. So it's a never ending job. There's plenty to do. I never can get all my work done in one day. I mean, <laughs> it carries over into the night, it carries over into weekends and, mm-hmm. and, uh, but I work with a great crew and, uh, it's fun. So if people want to, they can go to elevenexperience dot com and check it out. There's some yeah. really cool and that's images 11, and videos.
1: That, that's the uh, the numbers one one, right? It's, it, it,
0: well, you would you would write it out all all the le- all the letters okay. eleven, gotcha. Experience stuff. Yeah. Yep.
1: All right. Perfect. And uh, yeah, and, you, and the, so the skiing thing. I guess we may just touch on this a little bit because there's definitely. I mean, I've done I think seventy. 75 episodes or whatever it's been. And there's been a skiing theme. In fact, I think the last interview I did, we talked about skiing again. A lot of people are, you know, they're in the skiing industry and then somehow they, they get into fly fishing. What is, do you, do you, do you have any, uh, your take on that? Why that is, is it just outdoor sports? It's kind of all, you know, there's plenty of people that ski and do other things as well.
0: Yeah. I think if we can just say, focus on North America and, and in areas that have great fishing, you also have uh, opportunity many times to have great skiing too, from the northeast to the upper Midwest, obviously the Rockies the Pacific Northwest, all through California. So I think people that are are kind of attracted to that lifestyle of 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 whatever it is, whether it's retail, wholesale manufacturing, media, et cetera, or um, you know, being a participant. Like when I was doing a lot of skiing, I worked with a photographer here in Bend and we did uh, the photography for ski areas that did their trail maps, their, some of their advertising posters and postcards and we would go skier to skier. So I was, I was just the skier guy, That's but right. I was also kind of a, a beginning budding professional photographer. I'd had a couple cover shots. And so I was really learning a lot from this old pro. And then we got to go to Taos, New Mexico and Squaw Valley, and Grand Targhee, and, all these places and we got wined and dined, and, you know, I didn't make a penny, but geez, I got mm-hmm. to ski all day, hot tub,
2: mm-hmm.
0: eat and drink for free and meet just amazing, cool people. And then actually just look around for great opportunities to get cool pictures. And so I think there's a, there's a, there's a strata of people who just kind of like, you know, not going to work in a tall building, but maybe like being in a, outfitter role or you know ski instructor role ski patrolman role and they blend together that kind of lifestyle you know there's fishing bums and there's ski bums and yep. but there's not many golf bums that's true. you know there's not many you know polo bums right you you've got to have this kind of grassrootsy yep a little bit of hardcore type person that's willing to sacrifice maybe making more money for having a great that's life. That's true. Well, it's a great life making money too. I take that back because you have, you can afford to send your kids to college. And you can have yep. great health insurance, but there's other people who are more risk takers.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that's for sure. Okay. You know, if you look at your background and the photos you've done, do you have a photo that's kind of been maybe your most popular photo or something you're most proud of, and, and is there a story that goes along with it?
0: Well, I think the one that has probably been – seen the most and people just sort of like a lot, and I do too, is an underwater permit shot from Turn of Flats Lodge in Belize and the guide's reviving the fish, he's barefoot on the sand bottom and we were, we're fishing an ocean flat so there's really super clear water that come in on an incoming tide and it was just like glass and this fish is just, you know, permit or cool so mm-hmm. he's got it by the tail, about to release it and I just I had an underwater camera, not a housing. It was a dedicated dive camera, Nikonos 5, back in the film era. And I just went around and kind of took a picture from about three feet away of its front, and then its kind of 45-degree angle. And then from the side, I just took three or four shots because it was film. You know, he didn't blaze. Yeah, he's got, um, he's got yellow. The, like the you do ha- now.
1: The guy has yellow shorts on, right? Exactly. Yeah, I'll, so I'll put a that link. One I'll was put a link. That's of, a great shot, Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, it's cool. It's simple, but it just kind of has a bit of a pizzazz to it or something. And that's probably the shot that I guess is, my mean, one of my best shots, I suppose. And um, and then I can't really think of others that just completely blow my mind or anything, but um, I've just been super lucky to have been to so many spots and you know, out of the country a hundred and fifty some times on fishing trips. So <laughs> I've I've got quite a library and, and I just I just like it all. You know, I I like some very simple stuff that has mood in it or I like uh, a bit of humor. Mm-hmm. And some of those aren't you know world class shots technically. I mean fine art photography is technical. I don't do it. You know, it's for big blow ups and expensive prints. I'm more of an editorial photography, so what you see is what you get, and I don't manipulate a lot. I just like kind of taking shots of day-in fun experiences and everything that's wrapped around fly fishing, the travel, the food, the people you meet, wildlife, weather, everything. So Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of super awesome, technical, perfect photos, but I've got a lot of experience of people having fun and some great catches and just interesting things that, that we all love on the, every road trip or every fishing trip. So, um, I guess it you know, it also matters that I've done it a long time. I, I published my first shot when I was 16. So I've had a camera around my neck forever. And, um, you know, it's so funny I more and more, I just use my phone, but, oh, yeah. <laughs> But I, uh, anyway, I still have my uh, big pro iPhone. gear and all that, uh, and it's you, fun. Do you do I, the uh, iPhone? Oh God, I love it! I got yeah. an iPhone eight, with you know it's just a great tool, yeah. you know, for anything. And I also use a little Olympus Tough, that little pocket camera. Oh yeah, it's waterproof, and its macro setting is so good for mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies; those macro shots that are fun to get. And,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you can drop them. You can put them underwater. And, um really for you know 250 bucks it's just a great tool and that all kind of complements my big huge case of heavy expensive stuff okay. but um do you have you any know, when you
1: think of uh, I mentioned the tips that episode which was great can you give us maybe a, a tip or two or three of you know somebody that could maybe isn't that great at taking photos has been stuck in their point and shoot and and maybe can shed some light on how you make such great photos
0: Yeah I'd be glad to uh, uh, put a caveat on that with just two points. One is everybody should at least once or more than once go to keepemwet.org and read the keep em wet website. It only takes a couple of minutes and there are photo tips on it But we really have to move in that direction as a whole. Um, I'm sure half the people that are going to hear this go, yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally agree. We've got to keep fish wet. We can't, pull them up by the gills and all these terrible things that might've been, you know, actually just normal um, style back in the earlier days. But those days are over. We can't, we put so much pressure on our fish by just having so much better technique and tip it and flies and access and information. So, I mean, we're not producing a lot more fish. We just got to take better care of them and have each experience with them be as good for the fish as possible. So, one caveat. The second one, I'll just throw this out, out and you'll show, I'll, it'll just sort of show you the movement that we're in right now. So I do a lot of presentations at fly clubs and sports shows and fly shows, and I have a list of about 20 PowerPoint shows that I send to a guy at a fly club, and he can pick what he wants me to do. Far and away, the most popular subject right now is fly fishing photography. Hmm. More than the Bahamas, more than Cuba, more than Alaska, more than... trout, insects, and blah, 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 fly fishing photography because everybody's got a phone. And so that there's a little bit of responsibility that goes along with that. So we're we're, we're all interested in photography. Okay, that's cool. But that means we're going to be taking a lot more fish pictures. We used to just catch them. Wow, that's cool. Let them go out of the net and we're good. Catch and release. Well, now we're into catch and release 2.0. We have got to you know, really take care of our fish. If we're going to all be photographers, we really got to think of how we handle them, how long we handle them, and and all that. So I don't want to be on the soapbox too long ago, but that is so super important. Anyway, a couple quick tips. If if say I've landed a really pretty brown and and I've got my iPhone in my pocket and and the fish is in the net, it's unhooked, it's in the water. I'll sometimes gently just reach underneath it and bring it up to where the gills are just touching the water, and my iPhone is just down where my hand is just touching the water. So I'm shooting straight across. And if the lens of my camera or my phone is at the fish's eye level, which is usually two or three inches above the water, Mm -hmm. um, that low, low shot is really cool. Most pictures are taken at our eye level, looking down at someone with a fish or down at a fish. Generally, where someone has weighted, it's all muddy and murky and not very pretty. And it's a bad angle on the fish. You're going to get all mostly back or, you know, it's just not anatomically correct. So that gentle lift out of the net up at the most two or three seconds at the most. It just has to come up, be dripping, click, not even out of the water, click, done, drop, And if you're using like that Olympus Tough, you can bring it up, click, and then drop it down and also drop your camera down and take an underwater shot and release. And it just takes a couple seconds. The fish never has to go over rocks or ground or be brought brought into a boat. And so, um, and actually that low shot of eyeball level with the camera lens is, the fish is always anatomically correct. You can angle the fish head to the camera a little bit to give it a little different Mm -hmm. perspective. And um, and then non-fish shots, because I think just people casting and scenery is just really cool. So I'll I'll always look for like a cliff or a high spot near a river or lake or, or a flat and get up high and shoot down, kind of like a drone shot without a drone, but just getting that elevation mm-hmm. is just a neat look because it shows the changes of depth in the water, changes in the color of the water. So it b- provides an interesting... Scenic shot maybe with an angler or a boat in it so we've got those super low shots of fish we got the high shots of scenery and then i'd like to look for pictures that if you if you're gonna call yourself a photographer also call yourself a storyteller because mm-hmm. if you take the same picture over and over of a person kind of squatting down with a fish it's just not pretty and it's just Overkill, and we're done with it. I mean, Facebook and Instagram are going to kill more fish than any dam ever (laughs) built. Let's let's move away from just fish, 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 and get into you know the other stuff: the humor, the mood, the weather, tackle, equipment, macro shots of bugs, and do seventy-five percent storytelling with our photos, and maybe twenty-five percent of of actually you know casting, catching, releasing. And um, so I think if you think of, of yourself as a photographer, but you're actually a storyteller, you a won't bore your friends nearly as bad. And you'll just appreciate why we really love to fish, which is getting out there. And it's the travel, the preparation, tackle, organization, friends, family, you know, dogs, boats. It's everything. It's not just grip and grin. Right. Squeezing fish. Yeah, so, no, here, yeah.
1: On that underwater photo. So when you go down with your Olympus or whatever, you go underwater. How do you get the shot, you know, framed? Because it seems like once your cam's underwater, isn't it sometimes hard to see your your uh, viewfinder?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, if 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 say we go back to that kind of gentle lift, click above water, or right on the surface of the water, and then the drop to three inches below the water and release. Um the camera sort of is already pre-focused for that top shot and brought down, it, it doesn't take but you know 10th of a second to just sort of aim and shoot. And if you're back 10, 12 inches, you're going to have plenty of room. You'll get everything. And you can always crop in a little bit to tighten up the shot. And, uh, but, you know, uh, a good point and shoot camera can shoot, click, 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 click that fast. So you can do four shots on the release and, generally speaking you'll you'll see one angle that sort of you like best and then you can start using kind of that position more often than just sort of random experimental shots but if a fish is underwater and it's getting revived and ready to go you can you can take a few shots and I don't think that's too hard on the fish and uh, and you'll find that you'll have a picture that you like best and that'll be kind of your your style you know your everybody's got style it's it's the color of our socks. It's yeah. how we comb our hair or whatever, you know, so you'll see a shot you like best and you can start, you know, improving on that and and then just sort of adding more of those shots to your repertoire and pretty soon you got a photo essay in Catch Magazine.
1: There you go. Yeah, no, I just, I just think of my style of of photos and I have definitely been stuck in that old, you know, and this is, <laughs> it's good to hear this because it just makes you think like, okay, next time you're out, Think a little bit more just about, you know, just just think of that, you know, before you jump into it, where you're putting your camera. I think another good tip you had uh, just talking about is is the stabilization, making sure that you're not just holding the camera, that in fact, setting it on a, a you know, a fence post or something can, can help quite a bit is, you know, that, oh, that's yeah. still a pretty solid tip. Yeah,
0: yeah, especially, um, especially with telephoto, because it's hard to handhold anything over, say, 200, but... Any camera, the more stable, the better. And I'm guilty of, I don't use a tripod except for occasional food shots or some time exposures at night. But um, because I like to fish too much. And you know, nothing has ever been made that catches fly line more than a tripod. So um, I just don't use one very often, but I will use my camera case, laying it down on a gravel bar or I'll find a rock or a fence post or a hood of my truck. And that stabilization really, if, you know, if it's good scene, good composition, good light, if it's super still, it just gives it that little bit of just tack sharp essence that separates it from an amateur shot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, I have a little bit of a rapid fire round if you have a little more time to jump through a few more questions here. Yeah, go for it. This this will be uh pretty pretty quick here. I'll um I always start off the uh, you know uh, the the rapid fire here was just uh you know uh, kind of your top two flies, top two tips, and top two resources for. And we were talking about Alaska fishing. Do you you mentioned a couple of the flies like the sculpins and mouses? Do you have any specific names of patterns that you use that I could kind of sh- uh, share a link out to?
0: Yeah, well, I like two mouse flies, mice flies in particular, the Moorish mouse. Mm-hmm. And the Mr. Hinky.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely, definitely heard of those two. Okay. And, and what about do you have, um, and we're talking about, I guess species wise, we talked a little bit about char, grayling, rainbows, kings. If you were, you know, talking, I guess just take your pick and to give up maybe a fly fishing tip or two for catching those fish. If you, you know, if you were to get up to Alaska, anything you would throw out there?
0: Yeah, and I, I think I'd go back and, and mention that fry pattern again for the early season rainbows. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a, You can even go on some sort of science-based websites and fisheries and see photos of baby salmon. They're just nothing but a little sliver of silver in an eye and a clear little gray tail. Mm-hmm. But if you can match that, sometimes, like, say, the Brooks River and the other rivers, they get quite a bit of guide pressure you need to match the hatch to where we're talking millimeters and, you know, hmm. the depth of the fish and the width of the fish, the size of the eye, because someone's catching all the fish and they have the right exact fly. Cause it can be seriously technical. Um, hmm. so being familiar with the fry pattern is great. We all know the egg, egg fishing is yeah. great and the beat is great. That's pretty simple and yep. it doesn't need a lot of science, but, um, The other thing in Alaska is there's a lot of hatches on rivers. There's some rivers that have fantastic caddis hatches. Hmm. There's other rivers that have green drakes and beautiful mayfly hatches. There's a little lime green stone on many rivers. And so I would say always take a dry fly box and some 4X tippet because I've been in some hatches with a seasoned veteran guide, a seasoned veteran angler. And we get there and there's literally heads coming up and sipping in mayflies. Jeez. And they look at me, they go, did you bring any dry flies? Oh like, man. Yeah. And the other guy goes, oh good. Give me one. I go, well, well, we're talking river price here, right? Mm-hmm. River price. And, That's right. What because do those a lot go for? Will,
1: what do those go for on the river? Yeah,
0: they're like, they're 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Jeez. You never, but you know, a lot of times a guy will only have maximum down to eight pounds. Oh, so Because they generally don't need it for streamers, mice and salmon, you have eight to 20 pound maximum. So yeah, you got a spool of 4X and you're a hero. So remember the dry flies, Mm um, mouse is great. The, the tiny little fry patterns are great. And, um, and also I bring a four weight and if we're in a jet boat or airplane or something, there's plenty of room for one extra little rod, because I try to either identify or talk to my guide that I maybe at lunch, could we pick a spot where there's pretty good grayling fishing. Now, I don't want to go to Alaska and only fish for grayling, but it is an iconic fish of yeah. Alaska. That's and amazing. after a sandwich, putting on a dry fly, fishing for rising grayling, keeping some 16- or 17-inch grayling, it's wow. really fun. And um, so I always try to throw that in. And the, the last part would be don't forget pike. A lot of the lower parts of the river, not in the high Headwater areas, at lower parts where they're meeting the bay or meeting another big tributary. There's sloughs, and they're weed-covered sloughs that you'd find in the Midwest or anywhere, and they're loaded with pike, many of them. So uh, wire leader, some pike flies on a seven or an eight-weight. It's mm-hmm. really fun.
1: Perfect. And what about a couple of, uh, resources? You know, if, again, if somebody was putting together a a trip up to Alaska, anything you would recommend to get some information on either, I don't know, lodges, fishing, anything that, you know, it could be online or or otherwise anything come to mind?
0: Well, yeah, I think basically if if a person has the idea first of, of, you know, maybe doing a trip to Alaska and, um, It it just takes seconds online to do a search, and you'll find that there's publications that have had articles. There's local fly shops that will give advice. There's the charter companies that organize the raft, the cook stove, and all that. So there's a massive amount of information available, and it'll just literally take seconds to start seeing all that. It's not that hard to do. And then it's just a matter of uh, getting the right people together you know, probably start with a group of about four. You never want to take one raft because Mm. what if that one pops, you know? And so that we could talk another hour on that because, you know, when you catch even a trout or especially a salmon and you let it go, you don't want to just jump in the boat and start rowing because you've got salmon slime and smell on now the oars, the side of the raft, your vest, you know, your dry bag. So, Mm. you know, common sense is, by far the most important thing on a float trip in Alaska So you wash your hands really well. You wash the boat down really well. You know, at night you don't want a bear walking into camp and mm. taking a bite out of your raft. So oh, you t- always go in twos or threes, and you always have a backup. And um, well, I see, I forgot where I was going with all that, but it's just yeah, yeah. Uh, common sense. Go with go with a small group, but at least enough to fill two yeah. rafts. No, so probably a, four.
1: That's a great. Know. That's a great tip on the the boats. which, I mean, I've done some. Uh, you know, some trips up there as well. But actually it's funny because on the rogue river has been probably the, the one place where we've had bears actually come into the boats. Oh,
0: and uh, yeah, they're super smart. Yeah. The black bears on the rogue know how to open coolers by the Exactly, <laughs> They're unbelievable.
1: God, I know it's pretty crazy. Okay. Well let's, let's keep it. We got a few more. Uh, so what's your favorite uh, beverage when you get off the river?
0: Okay. Non-alcoholic would be a Arnold Palmer. Okay. If I was going to have a beer, it would be a Shiner. Oh yeah, in Texas. Yep. I'm on a a Texas roll right now. That's awesome. Actually, I I like them all. River Horse
1: is Um, going to love you for that one. For that that uh, reply.
0: Oh God, yeah! Shout out. Assist River Horse. Yeah. So, so the,
1: then, Arnold Palmer, uh, the Arnold Palmer. I I think of alcohol when when you hear that name, but that's not an alcoholic drink, huh?
0: No, it's half iced tea, half lemonade. Very refreshing.
2: Oh, okay. Cool.
0: Yeah. If you got to do a big drive or something like that, yeah, it gives you a little kick, and uh, perfect. It just tastes good. I'll try that yeah. out. And wow. then uh, I like the lawnmower beers too. You know NASCAR yeah. beers. I like the I like the light. Non beer beers, but I live in, yeah, well, like Bush and BBR, PBR, that's right. Coors Light. I mean, after you blow your lawn, is there anything better?
1: Yeah, you gotta, (laughs) yeah, you can't. The IPAs are great, but yeah, you can't drink a bunch of those, otherwise, you feel like crap.
0: So, if you want (laughs) to, and then if I'm in uh, Livingston, Montana, or somewhere in Wyoming, or I'm I'm like a Manhattan, you know, with my dinner, so, Mm -hmm. um. I'll go classic on on that and then kind of cheap on the beer. And then I try not to do the traditional 7-Eleven soda pop stuff, Sure. but, uh, you know, you have to sometimes.
1: Okay. And what about if you, um, do you have a favorite either band or type of music you like to listen to?
0: I'm all over the board. I just went and looked at my Pandora playlist, uh, my stations,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I've got everything from, well, I don't know if they're obscure, but say the Bodines and uh, classic American rock. Mm-hmm. I've got some interesting, eclectic, cultural music from the Caribbean. Oh, cool. um, I'm not a big jazz guy. I'm not a big rap guy. Yeah. But I I think when you cross Idaho into Montana, you better be lifting some Johnny Cash, right. or some Merle, or some Hank. Oh, yeah, and just crank it up <laughs> and sing along. Yeah, um, yeah. I go from ZZ Top to uh, Nora Jones. You know yeah. everything in between.
1: Yeah, gotcha. Okay. And what about? So you talked about skiing. Were there any other sports that you played or were into, and in, you know during your life? other than than skiing
0: yeah you know I was actually a very good gymnast and I started early at four years old my my mother was kind of acrobatic we were always doing weird flips and games and stuff as little kids and then I just sort of got into it I really liked it and so that sort of segue into springboard diving and I I had uh, a good Run and then I coached both, and then I was a judge of both gymnastics and diving. Oh, well. And I, I really enjoyed playing soccer. Like every kid, I loved baseball. I never got into football as a player. Yeah. Um, it, it, it overlapped different things that I was better at. What, what were your um, best? Sure, like
1: what was the one sport that you maybe would have gone pro in, or you had the best chance?
0: Uh, I would say in this order: ski racing. Then, it, even though there wasn't any professional diving or gymnastics, I was good. You know, I was scholarship type mm-hmm. diver and gymnast. And uh, but uh, yeah, you I enjoyed soccer a lot. I was on an, an adult league in Bend, Oregon. And we traveled and played uh, um, some Hispanic teams that were great, some mm-hmm. Russian teams that were really good, and then mm-hmm. just other club teams. And it was just a good way to stay in shape. And we yeah. practiced it. 4,000 feet I and mean, we could go down the sea level and just run her, you know, right. run that like crazy. So that's cool. that was always fun.
1: And okay. What, what about your, I, um, do you have a piece of like non fishing gear or something that maybe you, you don't leave home without maybe in your travels or something like that? Anything come to mind other than, other than a waterproof bag, it seems like I've got the, uh, that's come up a few times. Anything else that comes to mind?
0: Um, gosh, there's probably a ton, but, uh, If, you, know, and I, you could think, I've got writer's block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, think yeah. about it.
1: If something comes to mind, uh, you can let me know. What about your um, your rod, reel, line? If you're going for, um, let's just stick with. Uh, we were kind of on the the schnook, I guess. Thinking, what, would, what do you have? Like um, a couple weights and, and brands and stuff you like to
0: use. Well, um, I am brand neutral mainly because there's so much good stuff out there, and I've having been in the, you know, the manufacturing sure. and the distribution side and retail side and the media side, <laughs> basically every aspect of our sport. I just have so many friends. Yeah. Have you that, done it all? I mean, I've got...
1: Have you done, have you repped, like, almost everybody, or is it one of those things where you've just repped had a few main companies?
0: Um, well, the, nobody could rep everybody, but I, I never did work with Farbank, which is Sage, Reddington, and Rio, even mm-hmm. though I know a lot of the guys up there they're world class people world class products yep and um but you know if I go to a sports show, you know i'm hanging out with the guys at Thomas and Thomas I'm having a blast with Tom and all yep. his crew from orvis I'm seeing the guys at s a um and a lot of the new companies that have come up, Howler Brothers, oh, yeah. So yeah. it's all a big, huge family, yeah. and, and so that's why I say I'm sort oh, of brand no, that's neutral. That's cool. I, that's cool. What is yeah? The... My rod, my rod, criver is everything, oh, and yeah. all price points too. I don't, you know I love the cheap rods too. Exactly. No, that's,
1: <laughs> I know they're they're pretty much most of them are good. Um, so as far as Chinook, so you got a uh, what what weight are you and what line are you using? Like just the type of line are using for Chinook there?
0: Okay, I I fish mainly one line because I don't try to target really really big water. I like smaller to medium sized water and you can use not the fastest sinking wet wet tip that you own, but kind of a medium yeah. fast sinking wet tip. Because yeah. a lot of times Chinooks suspend up just a little bit. You don't need to dredge the bottom and you don't want to dredge and snag fish. So um And you're not spay you're not,
1: you're not uh spay using spade rods or any of that stuff. This is all single hand.
0: I'm more of a single hand guy. So yeah. I like a nine foot nine weight is generally fine if it's the potential of some really big fish and or there's log jams and things like that where you really got to put pressure on fish i'll, yeah. I'll use it 10 are guys using but, the spay uh, rods which, up there now oh yeah for, well, oh yeah for, for, yeah. for many people yeah yeah i'm in a, i'm in the minority now yeah okay
1: yeah that's right i just it's been a while since i've been up there and i i was definitely a single hand person forever as well and slowly slowly made the change like some of us do Oh yeah. Cool. Okay, well, that is about it. I you know, um I guess you know, um before I let you get out of here, I just want to check with you maybe in the next uh 6 to 12 months. Do you have anything going on, anything new we can expect from you? It sounds like this uh, um 11 experience is pretty good. Anything else going on?
0: Yeah, that's got my full attention right now and um you know as I've got a lot of opportunities as my earlier conversations with you uh, being a rep and then traveling for magazines and doing photo assignments and catch magazines. I've got to see an awful lot, mm-hmm. but I still like local fishing. I like my home waters because you know you get intimate with pools and how they change through the depth of the water, temperature of the water, the seasons. I just love that intimacy of kind of rigging up at home, knowing that this PMD or this little scud or something is going to be the right fly when I get there. So I like that local, Home waters fishing, and right. I'm lucky because I've got the the Crooked River just over the hill. I've got the Deschutes, the Metolius, right, great high lakes around here in Central Oregon, and um, and you've already so I get a little grumpy. Yeah, <laughs> you I'm sorry. Go... I, I get a little grumpy if I'm not getting my local fix, you know. So I can, you know, I can wait and get my Belize and get my kimchi and all that stuff. that's work related. I could never afford yeah. to do all that if it wasn't a job. Yeah, but I do get. Well, a little weird if I'm not, you know, I love some pre-salmon fly hatch time. I love uh, blue wing olives. I love PMDs. I love squalls. you know. So yeah. if, if that's happening and I'm not getting a little of it, yeah, I'm not the nicest guy in the world. There you go. <laughs> I got to get out of town.
1: That's pretty cool to hear. Yeah, after traveling in all these places, and you still, yeah, do some traveling. It's that it's that home stuff. you really, It sounds a lot like... Uh, a little bit like uh jeff courier who i had on you know and he he talked about the same thing how he's got you know he traveled whatever i can't remember the question i asked him but he basically said you know he loves the smallmouth bass fishing you know he's got these little spots local that he just you know what if he had to pick one you know that's always kind of a a rough question to ask but you know he he loves keeping keeping it at home so so good, Brian. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing, you know, um, all your stories here. Um, definitely, if people want to find you, I guess, uh, Brian Photography, uh, com is the best place.
0: Yeah, there's uh, contact information there. and It's just a very basic little website that just says, basically, hey, I've got a few pictures if you need them. Give me a call. But people can track me down if they want any more information or Anything we've talked about, I'd be glad to uh, be of assistance.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing the stories, and we'll keep in touch with you. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Okay. See ya. Yep. Yeah, bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetfiveswing dot com slash o'keefe. Interested in getting your spay casting critiqued? You can go to the members group, and this is one of the big bonuses you get. Just one of them, uh, if, if you join the group, and membership start at five dollars per month. You get this and, and access to all of our partner companies and a bunch of great resources. So you can go to wetflyswing.com/members to find out how to support local companies, the podcast, and get a bunch of cool bonuses. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to maybe see you on the river or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Shot. all right this is a special bonus we've got juna stewart on board and she's going to talk a little bit about how we're going to uh catch some fish this summer which is coming up and maybe we'll start off with some cutthroat fishing but then we're going to do some stuff all right juna so what do you think where do you want to go fishing what are you excited to do this this year this summer
2: the
1: yep the Deschutes. and what do you what's your favorite thing about the Deschutes? What are you excited to do? Um Catch fish? Do you like do you like fishing or do you like camping more?
0: I can't wait to go on
2: my backpacking trip with Mama and me.
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. We got the backpacking trip. That's we we should tell mom.
0: And we're gonna do it out of the, the shoots.
1: That's oh really? Okay. All right. We're gonna do it out the shoots. That's well. That's me. Yeah. That's you exactly. The louder you talk, and when you bump it, that also bumps it. So you don't want to bump the mic, and all this ruffling that also picks up. So you got to be quiet. Usually, just talk. But you can talk loud if you want. Talk loud if you want. Okay, we'll sign off. We're going to let them no, go. Give no, them a big sign no, off. No, no, no. Give them something happy for them to leave. The last thing they're going to hear is your voice. So say something happy for them. Anything.
0: Have a good
1: day. Oh, yeah. Say have a good day. Say it loud.
0: Have a good day.
1: All right. <laughs> All right. Perfect.